welcome to Healthy Perspectives Podcast with Jeremiah, where we provide clinical perspectives on current social and cultural issues. And don't forget, you can subscribe at Podbean, Spotify, Apple, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Please subscribe at any or all of them. You can follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, Getter, Twitter, and many other social media sites. Or you can email us at healthy perspectives with an S at protonmail.com. Hello, hello, welcome back. Thanks for joining us. Always, we appreciate your time. Today, lies, lies, lies. That's what we're talking about. We are going to go over the anatomy of lies, the types of lies, the intentions behind lies. Uh, We'll talk about some common justifications just so you can understand the flow from anatomy to intentions to justifications. And we, of course, will give you a to-do list. You know, I look, I, one of the things that's really important to me is that uh, I create tangible options uh, that are available to you that can help you change your patterns if that's what you're looking to do uh, or can give you insight into how others may be working to change their patterns so that we don't hold these stigmas against them, uh, you know, at the, at the end of the day when they're trying to do their work. All right. So first question, how in the world are we supposed to filter through all the lies? Well, that's a great question, right? I mean, I hope you're thinking that's a great question because there's so many out there. It's, it's almost, well, not almost, it is overwhelming for anybody who's really trying to pay attention to what's going on in our culture, um, in our economic situation, in our political situation, uh, whether that's the state level, the federal level, the, the local level. I mean, it is, it, there's lies all over the place. And in complete transparency, they're not all purposeful lies. Now, a lot of them are but they're not all purposeful laws. What I want to do is explore the anatomy and then what you can do when you encounter them. So let's start with the anatomy of a lie. You know, this is the the common makeup of a lie. First of all, not all lies are the same. They, there's different, uh, hmm, how do I say it? There's, Even though the intentions behind the lie are the same, there's different approaches, techniques, and stuff like that. Uh, Not all lies are intentional. Some lies are unintentional. Uh, That doesn't mean that they shouldn't be corrected. They should, but they're not on purpose. So when somebody's not lying on purpose, you know, and, and to determine motivation is extremely difficult. You know, most of the time we can't tell the difference until we get far enough past the event to look back on it and go, oh, you know, their character is pretty good overall. I'm wondering now if maybe that was by accident kind of a thing. All lies do accomplish the same thing, though. They destroy relationships. 
Lies destroy relationships. Why? Because they destroy trust. Trust is a foundation. Trust, communication are absolutely foundational to every relationship. You're doing business with somebody. Got to have trust. You're doing a relationship of friendship. Got to have trust. You're doing a romantic relationship. Got to have trust. You gotta, you're a parent and you're trying to grow children in a good, healthy way. Got to have trust. Without trust, it all starts to deteriorate, fall apart. So the anatomy. There's really only three parts. There's words, there's paraverbals, and there's nonverbals. Those of you who listen to me very routinely, you're, you're hearing similar things a lot of times. Why? Repetition, repetition, repetition. The more this sticks for you, the more we change our culture in a positive way because we're more aware. All right? Words. Words can be lies, but they may also be truths. Or they might be misunderstandings. Words are just that. They are ways in which we are attempting to communicate. Well, any attempt to communicate is an attempt to control the environment in front of us. I say, I'm going to do the dishes. I'm making a declarative statement. I am going to do this. Why? So that everybody knows that's what I'm doing and that's my role right now. It's a declarative statement. But it could either be true or it could be a lie. I'm going to do the dishes. And an hour later, I haven't touched a single dish. Well, was I really going to do the dishes? Is it maybe a misunderstanding? Maybe I got distracted from it because something else came up. Uh, maybe I got a phone call and you know the, the, the tire blew out on a car. Um, and so I'm, I went out instead of doing the dishes, which I was intending to do, I decided, you know what? change of uh, 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 intent because I got new information. So now instead of going to do the dishes, which I truthfully was planning to go do, I'm going to go help with the car. All right. So there's lots of ways in which words can tell truths, mistruths, or can be misunderstandings. The catch though, is it's all based on facts. So when we're speaking to the future, like I'm going to do the dishes, we don't have the facts for the moments in front of us yet. We have only intentions. When we're talking about the past, we have typically a more clear picture of the facts, making mistruths much easier to grasp. When we're talking about the present, we're all in it at the same time, and it's subject to uh, where our purview is, where, where we're looking from. And that's where we go back to, you know, the, the three blind men who uh, approach an elephant. One gets the tail, one gets the leg, one gets the trunk. They all describe it very differently, right? That's, that's what happens in the present tense. So that's the catch. Paraverbals. Tone, volume, cadence. You're, you're probably like, hey, Jeremiah, you're a broken record. I know, I know, I know. But paraverbals say so much. You, you've got to start paying attention to them. Please, I beg of you. Okay, no, I'm, I'm not going to grovel. Look, do it, don't do it. That's your call. But 
if you're not paying attention to paraverbals, you are missing a crud ton of information that is very, very, very helpful. The catch there is you have to have a baseline. In other words, you got to know the person a little bit, right? You know, if you catch me being sarcastic, I'm not super sarcastic on my podcast, but if you know me very well, when you catch me being sarcastic, my tone, volume, cadence are very different with sarcasm. Matter of fact, I almost over-exaggerate the, uh, uh, the sell on it, um, because I really want it to be believable for a moment. And then of course, you know, knowing who I am, I just can't, I can't keep a straight face. And so, and then I, you know, typically will give a nonverbal communication, little smirk of like, ha, gotcha. Right. But those paraverbals, if you're paying attention, you're going to catch it before the people around you who don't know me very well. The same is true when you're interacting with other people around you. If you don't have a baseline, so that's the catch. You got to have a baseline. If you don't have a baseline, you're going to miss paraverbals that, that mean stuff. The nonverbals, which I hinted at, um, the face, the posture, the position in the room or the environment. These are all significant things. For instance, if you come into my office as a therapist, one of the things, um, you know, in the counseling world, what I do is I put the couch near the door. Now I do that on purpose. That's not by accident. You know, there's so many ways I'd prefer to set up my office, but the reality is I want every client to be sitting closer to the door than I am. I do that on purpose. Why? Because those nonverbal cues create a better sense of safety, right? I also got to think about the, the, um, the voice and where it carries in the office and they're facing away from the door. So they're near the door, but facing away from the door. That way their voice is carrying to me and an exterior wall, meaning people that, you know, I've got a sound machine and all that other kind of stuff and a soundboard behind the couch. But to everybody else, they wouldn't hear anything that a client would say unless they were just screaming at the top of their lungs or they turn their head and face the door to do it because I don't want them to feel like they're going to be heard by anybody but me. It's a safety thing. So those nonverbals are so critical. Uh, you know, with men in particular, uh, now this is a, uh, a, a generalization. I know that. So, you know, don't, don't turn me, uh, off because you're like, Oh, you said men. No, please come on. Look for men in particular, though, the tendency to sit side by side is typically more comfortable. It just is. So to go into a therapeutic environment and face them directly can be very intimidating. It could be, um, to many people, the thing that actually makes them want to leave. They just feel uncomfortable. So, you know, turning the chair a little bit, giving them a little 30-degree angle kind of a thing actually helps them, you know, go to an ease position. These are really important things to consider as well. The catch, the catch about nonverbals, congruence and incongruence. This is how you catch it. You see where their words don't line up with their nonverbals. So if they come in uh, to your space and they have just an abundance of energy and they're talking about death, 
That would be an incongruence. People don't get excited about death unless something is really wrong. Um, whether they they are you know mentally ill or whether they are covering it. You know that you you all know this one, the awkward laugh. You know the 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 one where they're laughing, but you can tell they'd rather be crying. You know that's that's one of those non-verbals that we can pick up on, right? We're like, whoa, your body is saying you're about to cry, but your your face is saying something totally different. It's there's an incongruence between your facial expression and the rest of your body language. So we're looking for incongruence. Types of lies, shifting gears, commission, omission. Many of you have heard this. I'm going to go through this part pretty briefly. Commission, false statements based on facts and reality that tell a different story. So when the facts and reality tell one story and your statements tell a different story that cannot coincide with the facts and reality, that would be a lie by commission. Now, Hang in there. I am going to get to uh, the, the tricky parts of these things too. Omission. Purposely leaving out information. Right? Or the opposite of that, which would be purposely um, adding in information uh, you know, that, that is part of a different story and not telling them that you're switching to a different story. So you take the timeline of one factual event, the timeline of another factual event, squish them together as if they happened at the same time, but you don't tell people to bridge the gap. Well, that was one situation. I'm gonna tell you about another situation. Well, the reason that people do that is because they can leave out all the stuff in the middle. It's an omission. So commission, it can be tricky because Vantage points can be different, which means they see different facts. Now, I'm not letting anybody off the hook who purposely is telling lies. And please don't, right? Remember, when we get to the intentions part, you can, we'll, we'll start to consider the confrontation of it. But look, the facts are the facts. Reality is reality. You don't like it? Oh, well. Like, great. You want to live in fantasy world? I mean, more power to you. Stay there as long as you can, I guess. But the facts are the facts. If you say um, that they hit you and, you know, they, they, they hit you with a sledgehammer that was at least an eight pound sledgehammer and they hit you as hard as they could. And there's no marks anywhere. The facts tell a different story. You can't hit someone with an eight pound sledgehammer as hard as they can, even if they're like a five-year-old, it's going to leave a mark. That is a, that is a big hammer. So the facts tell a different story. Well, the same is true the other way around. So I deal with a lot of, uh, in the therapeutic world, I deal with a lot of, um, uh, trauma, um, whether that's physical, uh, spiritual abuse, um, emotional abuse, physical abuse, stuff like that. And in that world, the facts often paint the abuse long before the recognition that the abuse is happening. Um, and they're not getting caught, right? 
so the trauma exists oftentimes ongoing. Now, when we are missing facts, it can lead to accidental lies by commission, right? The elephant. I am telling the facts as I know it. I'm standing at the trunk. I'm like, this thing doesn't smell. But on the backside, at the tail, you're like, oh, this thing stinks like terribly bad. This is awful. I No thanks. I got to go. Why? I'm not lying. I am simply stating the facts as I see them, which are not completely accurate. That's different than a blatant lie, right? That's why, you know, that is actually additional information that's helpful. Oh, you're on the other side. Got it. Now I can learn to see a bigger picture. Emissions. They can be tricky because it can minimize or exaggerate aspects of reality, right? Minimizing and exaggerating. Uh, you've probably heard me talk about this a few times. Not, not probably as much as some of the other stuff, but minimizing and exaggerating are, are terrible. Uh, they cause us so much, so much trouble because it makes us not trustworthy. You know, you, you say, hey, I'm in the car heading, heading there right now. Uh, and, you know, I, I'm five minutes away. Um, and it takes me 25 minutes to get there. Was I really in the car? Right. <laughs> Wait, what am I leaving out? I didn't, you know, I didn't tell you I was going to stop at the store and do this and then, and then head over. Right. Those, those omissions make a big difference. They make a huge difference. And when we exaggerate or minimize, um, it changes the story. It changes the way uh, we are perceived in the way in which we perceive others. Uh, we see this a lot in human sexuality and social media. Uh, I'm just going to digress for just a moment into this. You know, with social media, uh, we see it. We see people exaggerate or minimize constantly. Whenever you see these these words, all every um, you know these all inclusive words you probably have somebody who's either minimizing or exaggerating. And at the end of the day, especially if they're talking about some kind of social aspect of the world, they are exaggerating or minimizing, period. Why? Because the human function is not an always, not an every time, not a never. There's going to be an example somewhere that makes that not true. And so... You know, we, we want to be really cautious of that all-inclusive language uh, because that is a clear sign of minimizing or exaggerating. In human sexuality, I'll, I'll paint you a picture here. This is, this is getting really tough in our world. And uh, I've worked with a lot of people who have, uh, you know, either relational challenges, which may include, uh, you know, their, um, their, their romantic relationship uh, yeah, and, and sexual intercourse within that relationship. Um, it also may include, you know, things like pornography use, stuff like that. Why do I bring that up? Because people go to the things that they want to see so much now that people think certain things are normal and reasonable because they see them all the time or they experience them and they're not. They're not. It's, it's just not 
normal for a person to want to suffer with pain. No, to want to grow? Yes. And is there suffering in that? Of course. But the want for pain goes against our design. Our design is to avoid pain. It just is. Now, that doesn't mean that pain is bad because it's growth is good and pain precedes growth. But we shouldn't be seeking the pain. Pain will naturally find us in areas where we need to grow. So when people encounter painful sexual experiences, I'm just being transparent with y'all. That's not, not what we would consider to be a normal human response. We shouldn't be looking for pain. We should be looking for growth, but not pain. And when we focus on the wrong stuff, it makes us less healthy. Okay. And I see that a lot in the human sexuality world. All right, intentions behind lies. This is where it's going to get kind of interesting for some of you. Because many of you are going to point to a lot of other things. But at the end of the day, intentions behind lies are all the same. It's a matter of control. We want control. So anytime we have lies, whether that's minimizing, uh, exaggerating. Now, I'm not talking about those lies the, uh, that are um, accidental, that are truly accidental. Those are not in this category. Those are not being done to control. They are done by accident, which is different. Okay, I'm going to break it down into two categories, self and other. And then within those categories, there's two concepts each. So when we're looking at the self, the self-image, we lie to gain control over our guilt or our shame. That's a big deal because guilt and shame, they, they make us feel less than. And so when we lie to make the guilt or shame go away, unfortunately, what's happening is we're reinforcing our worthlessness. Not worthless, but worthlessness. All right. The second part, others' image, how they think or feel about me. I would be, if I, you know, if I were lying to somebody in order to make them see me in a certain light, that would be how they think or feel about me. And my attempt to control that can make me lie. When I'm looking at the others, in an individual uh, circumstance, you've got confirming our own bias about them, right? We could, uh, we could confirm that I already know this stuff about you. And what we are doing is filling in gaps. And that's what we do with other people in their stories and their narrative. And when we do that, we're confirming our own bias. Now, there's a natural tendency to fill in gaps that can be really good and healthy, but it can also make us assume that we know things we don't actually know. So that's a pretty big risk to take. The better option, and we'll get to some of this later, but the better option, just ask them. Don't, don't paint it for them. 
Don't confirm your own bias. Don't make the pieces that they give you fit in the puzzle you think you already know. All right, the fourth, which is the second part of the other category, is painting them how I want them to be seen by others. I'll give you an example of this. This is probably the easiest example, um, you know, that, that's super easy and tangible. You know, there's there's certain people who have, um, you know, the, these public liaisons that speak on their behalf. For instance, the speaker for the president, right? Uh, you know, when you go to a White House, uh, you know, press conference or whatever, it's, you know, sometimes the president will come out, but more often than not, it's the speaker. What they are doing is painting the president how they want the president to be perceived by others, right? And that's a matter of control. That is completely a matter of control. Now, we're going to go on to the common justifications because they connect directly to those four things we just went over. And I know for some of you, you're like, oh my gosh, I need a book. I need to write this down. I get it. Don't worry. I get to the to-do. I'm going to give you some nuggets. That's what we always try to do around here is to give you some things that are tangible that you can take with you at the end. Those are going to be a lot simpler than this this theory uh, and theoretical explanation, all right? Common justifications, when we look at that self-image, the guilt or the shame part, we'll we'll go common justifications then would be, I'll never see them again, so the lie doesn't matter. That's a a way of managing your own guilt or shame. See how that works? Or you might say, I don't want them to know. That's a way of managing your own guilt and shame. Very common justifications that we hear. In an attempt to control how they think of me or about me, I would come up with these kinds of justifications. They don't need to know. Or my time is private and stuff along those lines. What we're doing is we're creating that wall between us uh, because we believe that that helps them see us um, in the way that we want them to see us. Okay, so we're going to move on to the other category. And in the other category, we had like confirming our own bias about them. Uh, I've, these are, these are common justifications. I've seen them do this a hundred times. It's the same thing. Lying gets me the result I need from them. It's assuming that we are more important than them. So what do we do? We confirm our own bias and then we attempt to control and manipulate. That's, that's the justification for it though. You know, I know this pattern and I know how to get what I want or need. Number four, which is in that same other category, painting them how I want them to be seen by others. Like we talked about the speaker. These are common justifications. I only say it how I see it. If you have heard that, that is drama. Like a hundred percent of the time, just about. Just about. Remember, these all-inclusives are not good, but it's close to that. That's drama. I only say how I see it. That's a way of justifying away the uh, uh, the way in which we want to paint them, the minimizing, the exaggerating, the, uh, you know, the I am right kind of mentality. It's very selfish in its approach. And then there's another common justification in this category, which is if they don't like me painting them this way, they should change. 
It's a way of avoiding looking at ourselves at all and pointing them at them as they are the problem. Well, maybe. Uh, but when you paint somebody like that, when you justify those, those would be red flags for me. So I would be pretty careful when you hear stuff along those lines. The results of every single lie, don't care how small, how big, and in a lot of situations, it doesn't even matter of the motivation, whether it is purposeful or accidental. It breaks trust. Even if you don't get caught, it still breaks trust. Even if you don't get caught. Now, how is it that if you don't get caught, that it breaks trust? Because there's something that happens in the individual's psychological state when we tell lies and get away with it. We begin to believe, one, that we're really good at it. Like we could just lie our way through the world. And then we convince ourselves that that's okay. But the more damaging part, in my opinion, is we then begin to believe that everybody does it. Confirmation bias. We begin to think that, well, I lie, so everybody does it. As if they are just like you. And the problem with that is that you struggle to trust. And when we struggle to trust, what happens? We don't create depth of relationship. If we can't trust ourselves to tell the truth, then the depth of our relationships can only go so far. And it's frankly not very far. So no matter how you paint it, it breaks trust whenever we tell a lie. It doesn't matter how big or how small. I had this conversation not too long back with somebody. Uh, they were walking down the street. They said uh, that they encountered somebody, something happened, and you know they... Uh, they, they would have told a lie in that situation. They would have said, uh, you know, like, you know, no, thanks. Um, you know, I, I, I'm busy. I got to go. I'm, I'm in a hurry. And, and the truth was they weren't in a hurry. And I asked the question, well, are any of your friends around in a scenario like that? Well, yeah, I mean, probably. Did you think that they might've noticed that you just lied to somebody? Well, they wouldn't care because it's, it's somebody we don't, we don't know. Um, false. Your friend is going, mm, okay. I mean, you know, some people will tolerate that stuff, but it makes them cautious. Like if you're willing to lie to anybody, why not to me? I mean, at some level that, that dilemma goes through the mind. So what do we do with all this? Like we covered a lot of material, but what do we do with it? When we encounter what we think is a lie, how do we deal with that? When we feel like we want to lie, how do we encounter that? Well, number one, control yourself. You cannot worry about everybody else. This whole idea of controlling what they think of you. Look, people are going to love you for who you are if you are authentic. Or they're going to love you for who you pretend to be. Which one's going to get in and be most helpful in your world? When you're loved for who you are or who you pretend to be? 
um, it's clear as day. There's less pressure when we are authentic and loved. I, I, I've seen it thousands of times in therapy. When we can be authentic, real, and loved, it's freeing. It just, it, it gives us the ability to, to attack the world in a way in which, you know, I, I'm sure most of you would love to, uh, you know, encounter this world. Number two, set relational expectations about lies. In the therapeutic world, I am completely blunt about this. From day one, somebody comes in. One of the things I talk about in the ethics uh, uh, portion of my informed consent is veracity, truthfulness. And that's, I expect truth from you and you can expect the truth from me. Now, it doesn't mean I'm always going to see it perfectly. I'm going to have blind spots. There's going to be times where I, I'm responding based on information I have. And you have better information because it's your world and you're the one who has to experience it. You got more puzzle pieces than I have. And if I make a poor recommendation, understand it's a poor recommendation that I don't think is poor because I'm probably missing information, which gives us a chance to do the relational work and get me caught up. All right. So set the expectations about lies in your relationships. Now, when you're hanging out with your friends, you're not going to be like, well, let's go over the ethics of a relationship. No, like that's, um, that's um, probably unreasonable for most relationships. But what you can do is set the tone that I expect the truth. You will always get the truth. And then once you set that expectation, you have to hold that expectation. When there's a lie, appropriately confront it. Now, remember their intentions are to control something, which means they feel like they're going to lose control. And when you confront, you have to, like, you don't have to, because I'm not here to tell you what you have to do. But the reasonable thing to do is assume they're trying to control something and know that if you go after them with a hammer uh, instead of a fly swatter, you're probably going to scare them because they're going to feel like they're more out of control right? That's terrifying. So approach them carefully, but directly. They need to know that you love them and care about them in spite of the lie you think you're being told. All right. Number three, make a list of secrets. This is where it gets really tough. If you really want to dig into this and stop telling lies altogether, and encounter a world of trust that you have maybe never encountered your entire life. Make a list of secrets that you have kept. Make a list of why you kept those secrets. Then own your decision. And if appropriate, reconcile it. Now this secret list thing I'm going to be really clear with you. Like if you, if you don't have a good support system, probably not a great idea. You should have a, you know, a, a very trusted friend that you have uh, the ability to be completely transparent with, uh, you know, a parent, um, you know, somebody, a, a mentor, uh, a therapist, like somebody that is very trustworthy if you're going to do this because you are going to learn stuff about yourself and it is it is going to be a little bit terrifying. It's You're going to look right at the face of your guilt 
and your shame. And that's frightening for a lot of people. But you really want to do some growth, give it a try. Number four, let go of the idea that you can control others. It's one of those things, you just, there was this old thing, gosh, it must have been back in the 90s. Now you know how old I am. Uh, Where they, they said, put it in a balloon and let it go. That's what you got to do with control. The control is just a myth. I've actually done a podcast you know, a long time back. Uh, I don't know how long, probably a few months ago on control. And it's a myth. It's a myth. You, you have much less control than you would like, than you think. And if there's somebody who's telling a lot of lies, they have even less control than they believe. Okay. That's the to-do list. I hope that this was helpful. Uh, and for those of you who are interested in reaching out to us, I mean, we love to hear from you. So please do it uh, yeah, and, and let us know what you think. Uh, enjoy your day and we'll see you next time. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. Please take a look at our website at www.healthyperspectives.com with a dash in between the healthy and the perspectives, make sure there's an S at the end.com. So again, www.healthy-perspectives with an S.com. 